an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, the hidden history of a roadside artifact in downtown Seattle. When you buy gasoline for your car, to be sure you're getting the tops in quality, there are just two things to remember. And then, from the archives, it's a carload of memories from the old Duwamish drive-in. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Our resident historian Felix Bennell joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map, a quick look at the stories behind the names of local places and things. And this week, the Northwest Candy Bar that honors its home state and that state's most famous export, the Idaho Spud. Good morning, Felix. Good morning, Aaron. Yeah, we've talked here before about the Mountain Bar uh, in Tacoma, Brown and Haley, Appleton Cotlets from Kashmir over mm. in eastern Washington. This candy bar comes from a bit farther away, but it's been a fixture in stores in western Washington for as long as I can remember and probably decades before that. It's called the Idaho Spud. It's made by the Idaho Candy Company in Boise, and it goes back to at least 1918, perhaps a little earlier. The company makes some other more generic candies like peanut brittle and that sort of stuff. And the Idaho Spud Bar, it's a bit of a throwback to maybe the 1940s mm-hmm. when there were still a lot of regional candy companies and regional candy bars all over the U.S. Every region had its own sort of bars like the Idaho Spud. Now, I talked to CEO Dave Wagers earlier this week. He told me the whole story, and you know, it's, he's, he's really into it. He knows the history of the company very well. Go ahead and open yours up. I've got a sample there for you. Yeah, here um, we go. Now, you'll notice the package looks like a russet potato. It has potato eyes all over uh-huh. it. And now, to be really clear, there's no potato in an Idaho spud. <laughs> the backstory is Idaho is famous for potatoes, and the first potatoes were planted there by a missionary, a guy named Henry Spaulding, back in 1837. And by the 1870s or so, Idaho Territory was a player in shipping potatoes all over the West, and the state was known far and wide for its potatoes probably by the 1890s or so. And in the most recent year for which stats are available, they they ship something like 13 million pounds of potatoes a year. Washington is in second with about 10 million pounds, so we're we're pretty close to Idaho in terms of potato output. Now, the candy bar is believed to have been named by company founder T.O. Smith. Now, what is an Idaho spud candy bar? Well, the core is a chunk of marshmallow. But it's not like a campfire marshmallow. There's no gelatin, only a seaweed extract, something called agar agar. Huh. So you might notice the marshmallow, when you bite it, it breaks rather than stretches. I think I actually like that. And that's what something that Dave Wagers told me about. Now, the marshmallow is covered with chocolate and then dusted with unsweetened coconut. So the whole thing, if you take it out, sort of looks like a potato except for the white coconut on it. Sure, yeah. Anyway. Now, <laughs> it's just shedding a little bit. Yeah. And now Dave Wagers told me they'll sell about 2 million of these um, Idaho spud bars this year. And much of those sales are in the states around Idaho, you know, Utah, Montana, Oregon, and here in Washington, where I, I get mine at the Bartels. But the bulk, probably 60% or so, are sold actually in Idaho. That's sort of a big duh, right? If you live in Idaho, it makes sense to buy Idaho spud bars. I don't think we have any candy that's named here for Washington. I could be wrong, but maybe there's some, I mean, there's Seattle chocolates and stuff like that, but we don't have a Washington State candy bar as far sure. as I know. Now, in talking to Dave Wagers, whose family bought this company about 40 years ago, I didn't want to get all political, but we talked here on all over, all over the map a few months ago about this movement that's underway to expand the borders of Idaho out to the Oregon coast. Oh, right. You know, rural Oregon, yes. they want to be part of Idaho. That seems like a business opportunity for Idaho's bud. Now, Dave Wagers told me he's president of the Boise School Board, and he tries to avoid weighing in on political issues because he ends up getting into trouble. So I tried to appeal to him as a business owner. 
if there truly is the bulk of your market is within the boundaries of a place called Idaho for an Idaho spud bar, you want all the states to become Idaho. I should probably sponsor the movement, you know, <laughs> it would make sense. <laughs> all right. Well, let's see if we can't get you in trouble here with the school bar. That'll be fun. So I don't know what kind of listenership we have in Boise or if people will pick this up, but who knows? Dave Wagers might be in big trouble now uh, for for his support for the movement to expand the Idaho borders to Oregon. So what, Dave, you get a chance to taste it? Are you no, I, can, oh, uh, oh, I oh. can give it a whirl. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh-huh, mm-hmm, what do you mm-hmm. think? I mean, it's got, it's, it's chocolate, it's coconut, it's agar, marshmallow. Well, you can taste that agar. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite good. The the marshmallow not pulling, uh, I like a lot. The cons- the consistency is is fluffy and gooey. Yeah, it's, 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 and it's not too sweet. Exactly. It's unsweetened coconut, too. And it's made in the same factory it's been made in the whole time. And it's a little brick building there right in downtown Boise. We'll have some pictures at MyNorthwest.com. And it's just one of these little regional products that's still hanging on. Um, Dave Wager's family bought the business 40 years ago, and he has nephews who want to take over the company someday. So it's just one of these cool regional things that we love to celebrate here on All Over the Map. Mm. Felix, well done. <laughs> and thanks for, the, uh, thanks for the candy bar. Sure, it's breakfast. Idaho Spud. You mentioned peanut brittle earlier. Have yeah. you ever... Actually, anytime I see peanut brittle, it's always the snake gag. I've oh, never actually seen of, yeah, a can right. of peanut brittle one of those with can. peanut brittle in it. <laughs> Northwest skies will be sunny. Yes, deep from the heart of Wallingford comes the savage cry of history with Cairo Radio's resident historian Felix Bunnell, who today has a story about a classic roadside landmark hiding in plain sight in downtown Seattle. Felix, of course, is brought to you by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning, Felix. Morning, Aaron. You getting ready for the uh, holiday radio play season there with your Buddy, I, yeah, did you see what I did? I'm, we, we I'm have throwing hints. We have dates for October and December. I'll, I'll get those on your calendar. Okay, so that vintage uh, Tarzan radio show opened. That will make sense in a minute or two here. You have to trust me on this one. So it is road trip season, right? And with the pandemic winding down, the desire to get out on the highway and cover some ground feels even more intense than ever. It's also the 65th anniversary this week of Congress passing and President Dwight D. Eisenhower signing the legislation that created the interstate highway system back in 1956. Now, the roadside landmark I want to talk about today is from a slightly earlier golden age of highway travel, which not many people think of as the 1930s because it was the Great Depression. But it was also a terrific era of great American roads and great American roadside architecture. Now, this odd little structure, what we're talking about today, it's in a parking lot along Denny Way at 7th Avenue in Dexter. This is just east of where the old elephant car wash sign once stood. And what this roadside artifact is, is a little two-story octagonal kiosk made of brick. It's really a strange, strange building unlike anything I've seen here in town before. It kind of looks like a silo, and it still has signs on it from what it most recently was, which is a skateboard shop, right? Now, I can't remember the first time I noticed it, but I finally had some time to do research about it. And by looking at old photos from the Seattle Municipal Archives and with some help from the state architectural historian, Michael Hauser, I was able to figure out that it was originally a pretty amazing gas station. Now, why would you have a gas station on Denny Way? Lots of traffic on Denny Way, right? But there's an even even better reason, because that gas station officially opened on May 17, 1933. That was also the same day that the new and improved Aurora Avenue opened. This was the connection from Denny all the way up to the bridge, and, and then the beyond the bridge up to 85th Street. You know, the bridge itself opened a year earlier in 1932. But that stretch between Denny Way and the bridge was like a missing link that just hadn't been there for about it. The bridge was just not there by itself. It was hard to get to. Uh-huh. And so this beautiful new highway opened up. And so 7th Avenue, which runs along the west side of that triangle-shaped lot, 
was actually U.S. Highway 99. This was like putting a gas station next to a freeway. Wow. Even though it's just sort of desolate yeah. now, that part of 7th Avenue, they built a sidewalk across it. Now you can't even get to, to Denny from right. 7th anymore. It's just like a little dead end. Um, so the odd little triangle, it seems like a bit of a wasteland. Actually, a brilliant place to open a gas station in 1933. And now, this wasn't just any old gas station, right? We wouldn't be talking about it this morning if it wasn't for the fact that the kiosk had on top of it a giant rotating neon sign, narrow and shaped like a three-sided pillar, probably 20 feet tall, it spun around uh, three times a minute, and it had three sides. It was festooned with 300 feet of neon tubing, and spelled out vertically on the sides of the sign were the words Signal, Marine, and Union 76, because they actually sold three brands of gas, which is kind of, I don't quite get that. It's a different different era. And they had nine pumps. I mean, this was like a, a, a palace of gasoline wow. um, sales. And there was a big canopy that covered the pump areas. Now... The Tarzan part of this, right? The Signal brand had just come to Seattle in the spring of 1933. It started in California a decade or so earlier, and they made a big splash on the West Coast in early 1933 as they expanded into Oregon and Washington and sponsored the Tarzan radio program. And you could hear it three times a week on KJR in Seattle, by the way. So, see, you could trust me when I said to bear with me to, to right. make the connection between Tarzan and a gas station. And now the print ads uh, for Signal Gas from 1933 are over the top. Uh, they claim that signal gas gives the power of Tarzan, mm-hmm. and they show Tarzan, you know, wrestling with a crocodile or about to stab a tiger. Very politically incorrect. Tarzan yeah. was like battling the animals in those days. It wasn't—he wasn't, he wasn't right. like the the eco warrior he eventually became. No, no, no. And so, you know, the, what what all this says is that the dirty little secret of gasoline is that it's all the same, right? No gas gave you better mileage or was better to your car. They had they had to come up with some. The marketers had to come up with a way to convince their consumers to choose their product over somebody else's for irrational reasons, right? There wasn't like, you know, it's all this all comes out of the ground. It's all, it's like, you know, anyway. Yeah, that's right. So by sponsoring the, the Tarzan radio show and creating something they called the Signal Tarzan Club, they motivated kids to pester their mom or dad about which gas station to visit and which gas to buy. Oh. You know, Signal did this, but so did uh, Richfield, which became Arco. They had a kid-focused Jimmy Allen flying club that was actually based in Seattle in the 1930s. Now, that's not to say the oil companies didn't also try to appeal to adults. We have a signal radio ad from around 1940. Mileage is really the best yardstick of gasoline quality. That's why we're so proud of Signal's good mileage. And it's why Signal says, when you buy gasoline for your car, to be sure you're getting the tops in quality, there are just two things to remember. One, in gasoline it takes extra quality to go farther. (laughs) And two, throughout the West, from Canada to Mexico, Signal is the famous go-farther gasoline. Yeah, see, it lets you go farther because it's, it's <laughs> yeah. special. It's very That's special. Right. I'm impressed. Yeah, that kind of sounded like your voice <laughs> at the beginning there. <laughs> a little bit. Now, um, better. I also found the architect's name on some documents and plans that the city of Seattle uh, Department of Construction and Inspection shared with me, a guy named George Wellington Stoddard. Now, that name didn't ring a bell for me like other o- local architects like Paul Theory or Victor Steinbrook might. But once I looked at his biography on the website of the Washington office, Washington State Office of Archaeology and Historic Preservation, I did recognize some of the buildings that George Wellington Stoddard designed. Uh, the South Grandstand at Husky Stadium, way ahead of its time, very modern looking. The old Aqua Theater at Green Lake, part of which is still there, yeah. which was a place where Led Zeppelin played in the late 60s. Right? Did they really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. And then my personal favorite, the beleaguered and much under-disappreciated Memorial Stadium at Seattle Center. That's mm-hmm. another Stoddard piece. So, and, I, and I mentioned Michael Hauser. He's the state architectural historian. I asked him why George Wellington Stoddard is not as well-known as it seems he should be. I think he's really one of the sort of I don't know if you want to say he's the top 10 underappreciated, you know, sort of guys that are the players. But, um, I mean, his he did stuff all over the state and certainly had a very long and prolific career. So 
he he definitely was a player during the time and just you know not as well noted because nobody's really studied him in that much depth or you know he didn't do grand sort of buildings did a lot of residential properties did a lot of schools and and smaller kind of you know pretty cool little commercial buildings here and there yeah, you know, Signal was pretty well known for some visually striking stations. There's still an old one in Portland in the St. John neighborhood that was restored, and it's now a pizza place. It's got all the neon and everything. It's a gorgeous-looking building. Um, now, that old Signal gas station on Denny Way probably won't be around much longer. Uh, the assessor's website says the land is worth about $2.8 million. That's a very expensive little triangle. Mm. Now, I'm not positive, but it sure seems like it'll become something besides a parking lot or a skateboard shop. Um, in the meantime, some of the artifacts are still there, including one of the original three pump islands. There's this big concrete thing. It's just oh, still there. Uh-huh. A lot of uh, metal hardware in the ground that looks like it probably goes to the gas tanks. And um, the gas signal gas brand was around into the early 60s. I couldn't figure out exactly when that Denny Way station ceased being a signal gas station. Um, but through permitting, it ceased uh, officially being allowed to be a gas station in 1987, which I think was a strategic move because in 1988, the state started tracking um, defunct gas station tanks. So the tanks might still be there. It's not on the state's radar for having ever been examined. Really? So that's, you know, that's just part of the modern, modern property issues. Um, George Washington Stoddard passed away in 1967. Oh, and I checked with Mohai yesterday. Restoration continues on the elephant car wash sign, and there's no timeline for when it will be on display. Do we have time for a little more Tarzan? This last little, let's hear a little yeah, bit of Tarzan. Sure. Okay, let's hear a little bit of Tarzan. Here we go. The girl had sung in a low, vibrant voice. But it was not the magnetism of her song alone, but the terror in her eyes that brought Tarzan to her aid. With enemies in constant pursuit, ever threatening to still the lovely voice forever and to kill Tarzan for his interference, he manages to delay her inevitable fate as he guides her across a continent in our next story. For this is Cairo where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, at the old Duwamish Drive-In Theater, it really wasn't about the movies. Yes, this is the most important voice of all. The applause, the acclaim of audiences all over the world for the warmth, the gaiety, the romance of the voice... Of the turtle. I love you, Sally. Did you hear me? We're talking about drive-ins <laughs> this morning. I have no idea who the turtle is. But um, drive-ins, a, a movie concept where you you go there to do everything except watch the movie. Although um, my parents used it as a, when they couldn't find a babysitter, they would load us all into the car and take us to the uh, drive. We saw the South Pacific. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the, Mom that tried one. to hide my eyes when Mitzi Gaynor put on her little top there. <laughs> That was one of the selling points in the drive-in ad, because today's the anniversary, the 68th anniversary of the opening of the Duwamish Drive-In, which was probably the nicest theater around here. Right? And I don't know, if did you recognize the voice in the voice of the turtle there? I did not. That was uh, the future president, Ronald Reagan. What? Yeah, in that 1948 movie, which I'd never heard of, but that's the movie that premiered at the Duwamish Drive-In back on May 11th, 1948. Right? His voice was much higher then. Yeah. <laughs> So it, Duwamish wasn't the first drive-in around here. The, the Midway had opened in 1942. That's It was called the Northwest Motor Movie. That's the one that became a swap meet eventually. Uh-huh. I had no idea. I thought drive-ins were entirely a post-war phenomenon here, but they actually opened during the war, and they had them. Uh, they had late-night showings at 1.30 in the morning for defense plant workers. So there were, there were drive-ins all over the landscape back in those days, and they really took off after World War II. That's when American car culture really revved up and went full throttle, you know, drive-in restaurants, Cars with nice radios in them, big shopping centers with parking lots like Northgate and Bellevue Square because the real estate was cheap, right, and people wanted affordable entertainment. But, you know, throughout the 50s and 60s, the drive-ins had an advantage that the family living room 
even as TV came around, because, you know, we had TV here starting in 1948 as well. The drive-ins had an advantage. They had this, this thing called privacy. <laughs> and I spoke with sure. Jerry Vandenberg. He's a local businessman. He grew up down in Riverside. He was born in 1940, grew up along the Duwamish River, and he spent many a teenage night at the Duwamish back in the 1950s. During the intermission, the, 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 the radios went on loud. We'd jump up on the roof of the, of the car and start dancing, and uh, it was just a place where you could be a teenager without anybody caring what it was that you were doing. Yeah, and what exactly were those teenagers doing away from all those praying adult eyes? I'll give you one guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Necking. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's one way to put it. So, <laughs> so my non-scientific research continued with another patron of the Duwamish, and uh, uh, this is a longtime local radio guy and former Cairo newsman, yeah. Tony Miner. He's, he's about, I think he's about uh, 13 years younger than Jerry Vandenberg. He grew up the hill in White Center. And in 1969, he had a 53 Chevy with a peace sign in the window. He said he was a hippie in those days. He said everyone was. And he says the Duwamish, it wasn't really about the movies. For kids growing up in White Center, the Duwamish was one of those go-to places, you know, uh, one of those places where you took a date at Lincoln Park, at Alkyde Beach, and maybe even Seward Park. You didn't really go to watch the movies, if you know what I'm saying. If you had a good night, if you had a lucky night, he didn't see anything of the movie. <laughs> so I know this is breaking news, right, yeah. that the drive-in was not about the movies for people like Jerry Vandenberg and Tony Miner and probably thousands and thousands of teenagers at drive-ins all over Puget Sound because there were dozens of them. You know, one thing Tony says, the Duwamish definitely wasn't about the concession stand. The pizza was just awful. I mean, it was like a piece of cardboard with tomato sauce on it. Uh, the popcorn was dry. The hot dogs, the, the buns were dry. The hot dogs were wilted. Even the, even the soda was flat, and the speaker was bad, but you're on your own, you're mobile, and you're maybe taking a, a date down there. So that was the fun part. It really wasn't the, the crappy sound or the crappy food. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been replaced. There's a Boeing office park that went in there in the late 80s. Mm. You, know, you can still see some of the old pop No necking going on there now. Yeah, well, I don't know, Dave. Um, <laughs> that'd be another story. But, you know, the Duwamish closed in early December of 1980, ironically, just after Ronald Reagan had won the presidency. I don't think there's any connection. But uh, the, the movies had changed a bit. They weren't showing the voice of the turtle anymore. Do you want to take a guess at what any one of the three films on the triple bill was back in December 1980? Good time for Bonzo. No, it was, uh, here's their three. How to Score with Girls, <laughs> Naughty School Girls, or The Car Hops. And I can't find anything about any of those films on IMDb or Wiki or anything. So those uh, are sort of a different genre I'm not familiar with. Amazing. I want to hear that voice again. I love you, Sally. Did you hear me? Okay. That's Ronald Reagan. The Gipper. Yeah, yeah. Got I love it. the selling points of this flyer you brought in from the Duwamish Drive-In. Uh, world's largest screen. Okay, no Maybe. parking or dress-up problems. <laughs> <laughs> As if anybody would dress up today. Yeah. Baby, baby bottle warming Isn't service. That handy? Even. Yeah, yeah. Wow, I'd like that at the theater now. Take children, cost less than a babysitter. Love it. Yeah, and the economic model obviously changed. Real estate's much more valuable as an office park. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. Follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at mynorthwest.com. And please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. This has been World's Fair Newswire, a last-minute report on progress of the Seattle World's Fair, prepared by World's Fair News in Seattle.